Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Hey everyone, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Now, I want you to just sit back and relax. Close your eyes. Wait, open your eyes. You're going to wreck. Well, you might be Wait. listening to this episode while driving a car or running on a treadmill. This is our 200th episode? Dude, <laughs> 200th. 100th episode? I don't know. I can't remember. We've done so many episodes now. Can we go back to now. that? Wait, wait, can we go wait, back wait. to that trans thing? No. Again? It's uh, two years. Oh, okay. Two years. My bad. Yeah, we just had our 100th episode a few episodes it ago. It feels like 200, though. It does. <laughs> and now I'm putting out an open dare for anyone listening to, because you're probably, I don't know, if you've been here from the beginning, high five, thank you, you're awesome, but if you're a newbie, uh, I dare you to go back and listen to every single episode, because then you'll be a genius. Cool, episode over. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so Episode we, crit Monday. <laughs> that person you've got, you keep hearing that who hasn't been introduced. That's uh, Josh Newell joining us because you were actually the first interview we had on the podcast, but um, you didn't get released immediately. But you were the first person we spoke to, and you also did the uh, one year anniversary. Now you're on the two year anniversary, and uh, now you're in a special so, club. Yeah, so let's talk about amateur hour here. <laughs> I'll start. So I missed the first clap there, by the way. I was doing something else and you guys counted down. So <laughs> I just want to address amateur hour because you would think that after two years and stuff that we would never have technical problems. But uh, so <sighs> you would think, but no. So, all right. So you got hosed by Pro Tools. Yeah. Yeah, literally like 10 minutes ago, we had. Josh's computer was not loading Pro Tools. No, it was more like 40 minutes ago. Yeah, 40 ago. minutes ago, wouldn't load Pro Tools, right? You had to reinstall the drivers? Uh, yeah, it, it, Avid just randomly... Well, my laptop crashed, my tower crashed. Then Avid was trying to randomly install some driver that I didn't need. And then Pro Tools wouldn't launch. And I was on the verge. I was unzipping the installer file when I thought to try one more thing. And that finally worked. But even when it finally opened, it was trying to launch U-Control for my fader pack that I don't have hooked up at the moment, so. <laughs> Amazing. And then Joel's Cubase messed up. Now, hold on. I'm going to put an asterisk next to this here because <laughs> th this is a special mess up because this one has really never happened. Okay, I just built a really sick new computer. I mean, it's it's pretty damn fast. I had the computer nerd team in the room, and they spec'd out like all the parts for my budget. And I got a really badass P PC. You know, it should be able to handle something as simple as like recording, right? So you know, got it going. Hit the button, pop in. I'm like, hey, you know, anniversary episode. I'm gonna be Hollywood today. I'm gonna go into my other <laughs> office with all the cool lighting and the candles and shit and the incense, and I'm gonna sit down and drink tea and I'm gonna relax and have a little bit of fun podcasting instead of staring at a scream uh, sc screen and screaming at it the whole time. I'm gonna, you know, chill out. So I'm like, yeah, better check the audio. And I look over, boom. It can't handle the amount of tracks that are being recorded, even though I'm only recording one. And I'm like, okay, new supercomputer, can't record one track of audio in a, in a session with maybe like 20 other tracks. Boy, we're in trouble. Or you could <sighs> be like me and be using GarageBand. 
and, uh, <laughs> and it'll never it'll never crash. Yeah, you're like the smartest one here, and you're using the most basic program, <laughs> dude. Fucking GarageBand. The reason I started using it sometimes was because I'd end up in a hotel room and realize I didn't have my airlock with me or something, and like, uh oh, we got a podcast in about five minutes. What the hell am I gonna do? And then I would just, uh, I look at the my manhood meter, and I'd watch it decline just a little bit, and I knew, I knew that <laughs> as Garage Man loaded, my, I knew that my manliness would never be the same. But after a while, I just got used to it, and I learned something, which is that it never crashes when we're doing podcasts. You know, I, it feels like you've been kind of womanly lately, and I feel like that kind of um, Dude, it's just been explains it. For about six, <laughs> it's been this way for six months. <laughs> yeah. Coming out. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. I was kind yeah, of concerned about gar- you, but garage. now I'm... I, I just fig- I figured you guys would be accepting if I let you guys know that I've been doing these on GarageBand. Though I did record one on Pro Tools recently, and um, it worked fine. I feel like we can all move on now that uh, we got that out of the way. No, we I might- feel like this is a really important <laughs> emotional topic and thing for you that we need to get through. So if you want to talk about it more, we're here for you, man. <laughs> well, Wait, let's I'll- talk about how many times... Pro Tools has crashed on Josh in like the last year. I want to know the number. <laughs> um, we uh, we have a rule when we do uh, records. Um, for those of you we? listening, well, I just came off a Linkin Park record that we spent almost a year and a half on. So we have a rule that we we kind of establish the rig at the beginning of the session. And the only time we're allowed to update OS is if we take a break. Like everybody takes a week off for Christmas. Okay, we can update OS, we can update update versions just because that gives us a week to kind of sort bugs out. But we I, I don't even I don't even know. It it was at least I mean, I'm sure it averages out to maybe two or three times a day across the <laughs> wow. four I mean, that's across the four rigs that we were running at all times. So it, to to a degree that Mike Shinoda actually tweeted at one point, oh, this record would have been done six months ago if Pro Tools would quit crashing. And uh, <laughs> since most general music fans don't know that's a joke, they started, they, I, I kind of will follow the uh, Linkin Park subreddit every once in a while just to see what the fans are into. And uh, there was you know serious discussions about how Pro Tools was ruining the record and why don't we have backups? Like nobody took it as a joke. It was really, really kind of funny. The internet has a way of just taking things and running with it. <laughs> it's kind of fun in a way. Like you say something and then, I don't know, um, one particular scenario that rings about in the last couple of months was somebody was calling me out on the forums because they thought the whole 4K April Fool's joke that we did last year was real. <laughs> and like This guy was like really pissed at me and he was like just thrashing me. And I'm like, dude, it was a joke. And he's like, oh. <laughs> but people believe it's real. I mean... I'll cut 4K out of guitars every once in a while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, because fuck 4K. It sucks. Cut it yeah. out of everything. So, all right, so year and a half that's like the kind of story that i grew up seeing on bands documentaries like the metallica documentary of them going to the studio for nine months or ten months doing the black album you don't hear about a year plus in the studio anymore um i mean yeah i i would imagine most bands don't have that kind of budget especially since now that we're not tracking an analog and you're you're editing faster Actually, let me throw, like, having nothing to do with that, if you guys uh, out there haven't seen A Year and a Half of the Life of Metallica, definitely check out the, uh, at least the first video, the making of. Oh, yeah. 
that's that's how oh, I got awesome. into recording. I mean, we were discussing Metallica earlier before we all got our computers working, but that documentary was the. I was such a Metallica fan, I got it. And that documentary was the first time I realized you could actually record music for a living. Dude, that how many times do you think you've seen it? I would say probably at least fifty. Damn. I've, yeah, I've seen it I think like so too. Probably 15 times or so. Oh, yeah. It's a prerequisite. I mean, any recording video that came out back then, because there wasn't anything where you could watch somebody else in the studio, you had to watch at least 10 times just in case you like had a secret microphone that you didn't know about. Or, you know, you caught that little fader ride right there and you're like, oh, oh, that's a sample. Got it. Ah, figured it out. You know it was what? like a big deal. I recently rewatched it because I got drunk and decided. Like, How was it? Uh, it was good. The new Metallica songs were out. I was drunk one night. I'm like, man, Metallica's great. And then I realized I didn't have Cliff Em All or a year and a half on DVD. I only had them on VHS. So I got on Amazon and they were like 10 bucks each. So I bought and rewatched, uh, I at least rewatched like the making of al- uh, album one. And it was kind of fascinating. Like, oh, he was using this mic and he was doing this. I mean, that studio is half a mile from my apartment. And I interviewed for a job there when I moved here in 2001. And it looked exactly like it did in the Nothing Else Matters video. It was awesome. Wow. Did you uh learn anything from watching it was it still badass because i never watched it i guess as someone who records i've never seen it i've seen it as a teenage fan um there wasn't a ton there's also that ultimate albums video on it um that i got as well there's some weird neumann mic and i can't remember what it's called that they use on the snare that uh Jay Rustin and I were trying to figure out what it was one day. And I don't remember what it was because it's some oh, yeah. kind of side address mic that lays across. Yeah, I got it on Gear Sluts. I saw, I found it. I don't remember what it is, but somebody in Gear Sluts knew. Oh, um, uh, what's his name? I'm drawing a blank. Kurt Ballou, uh was using that recently. Oh, okay. Saw it on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't, the you know, the video doesn't really, the video is obviously focusing more on the band and them being funny and then making the songs than anything technical. So there wasn't anything that really, really jumped out other than it made me glad that we don't edit on tape anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's still pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I feel like I should watch it again one of these days. The, uh, the one thing actually the most jumped out is they were, uh, it's one of those making of videos and they were playing one of the songs. They pulled up some guitar part and they're like, oh yeah, we didn't use that in the final version. And, uh, James is like, oh, I don't even remember that decision being made. And they're like, oh, you're probably at Star Garden. And they all started laughing, which to get that Star Garden is a strip club another two miles up <laughs> the, the oh. street that the studio is on. It's like the diviest, scummiest place um, <laughs> where I once played a Hurricane Katrina benefit show with one of my bands years ago. But <laughs> I was like, I know what place they're talking about. Like, I get that reference. <laughs> wow. I, I wonder how many references there were like that that people like me just totally missed probably um, quite a few because i definitely missed that one yeah i had no idea but they do bring a stripper in at the end yeah probably from star garden <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it like right after the mastering gets done or was it sometime in the middle to relieve stress i believe it was sometime in the middle to relieve stress because that got mixed down at uh oh like what is it now it's a&m now or i'm no tension now it would have been a&m at the time okay well, all right. So back to Lincoln Park. So do you guys, besides the, uh, you have the OS rules, are there any other rules going into a session that long? Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for as far as the technical stuff goes, they always kind of left that to the engineers. Um, but the way every album kind of works, like the, there, I mean, there are some rule sets. There's some stuff with the, uh, uh, you know, band privacy and security and stuff like that. But as far as from a technical aspect, 
Um, usually we would, f- we feel out kind of the direction the band wants to work in before they go in and, and then they kind of give the, uh, cause they've self-produced the last two records. So they kind of, uh, let me and the other engineer know, uh, this other guy, Ethan Mates, they let us know what they want to do. And it's kind of our job to track down the amps and the equipment and all that. So, uh, I mean, I guess the other, the only, the, the software rules kind of ours and that doesn't really get messed with, um, we try not to change computers either. The band actually has their own Pro Tools rig that we bring from studio to studio. But uh, this record we changed. We moved when we, at, when we went to Sphere Studios, we had to change actual computers and do a whole bunch of rig cloning. But um, no, there's not really any hard and fast rules other than the OS one, just because you don't want, if you're in the, you know, nine months into a record and there are 40 plus songs on the table, you want to make sure you can open and play any of them at any time. So that's more like a, a stability thing. We would sometimes do Pro Tools updates. We found something that was more stable, but that's really that was really about it as far as, like, these are our rules from a technical aspect. Okay, so the, this past year, you've definitely been in the cave a bit, so I don't remember when we talked about this. I've been in the cave, too. Some, so our conversations tend to happen late at night and sporadically, so... At some point, I remember Pro Tools was hosing you and you were looking, you had to update something or was that the rig cloning giving you lots of trouble? It may have been a rig cloning and changing OS. I honestly don't remember because <laughs> that there are, I mean, that whole session such a blur and the number of times that we did have kind of, you know, DAW crashes or the amount of editing that goes on on the fly and the amount of virtual instruments that are going on, not even really from a... Um, like from a lack of playing ability, but so those guys when they're when they're in the studio, it's not like a rock band. Everybody's written their parts and they come in and track. It's we set up stations so like you can literally track any instrument you want. There's there were three different pianos, two different drum kits, bass amp, all these guitar amps, all these guitar pedals, you know, synths, synth controllers, um, and so you know, somebody they're, they're not coming in with the songs written. So it's really more like you're making a pop track or hip hop track when you're working with them. Like, Oh, Hey, today let's see what happens if we change the key of the whole song. And you're having to do like a massive amount of editing. So, I mean, the software crashes would be, you know, Oh, we have this 120 track session that we are now pitch shifting and time shifting. And we have to figure out what's going to get replayed and what's going to get reprogrammed and what MIDI is going to get rebounced. Um, so there's no, there's <laughs> I probably there. Yeah. There are probably like a good 10 times that I bitched you about the computer crashing or software <laughs> hosing us. I'm sure. I mean, I think I had two UAD cards die doing that record. Like there was, there were kind of a lot of problems. <laughs> so our, that's awesome. So yeah, really awesome. Like, all right. All right. So there's this scenario you just pointed out, which is you guys have a song you've been working on and someone says, we're going to switch the key of the song. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens next? And how long does that take and what, yeah, and what happens next? Run us through that. It depends on who suggests it and when. Um, there's the main control room Pro Tools rig. There's my edit rig because um, I'm technically hired on as the Pro Tools editor, but or that's supposed to be my primary function. But the other engineer and I have been friends for years. And the way it works is just kind of whoever's in what room ends up doing that. Like if you're in the room and someone wants to get a guitar, you're now getting a guitar tone and the other guy's going to go edit. 
but it would depend. Like, oh, I want to hear this song sounds like pitch shifted. Sometimes it'd be, let's, let's hear it real quick. You know, you do a bounce and just do a quick dirty shift. And then if they really want to do it, you either sit down and take the time to do it, or somebody takes it to an edit rig and then spends the rest of the day, you know, pitch shifting each part and figuring out like, all right, well, there's going to be too many artifacts on that. And it has to get replayed. Oh, okay. So, you know, if like you have a virtual key line or a virtual string part that's coming out of contact, then you obviously just move the MIDI, but... If it's the guitar part, like, all right, well, we're going to have to redo this guitar. But then some of the guitar parts are more like a texture thing where it's a bunch of crazy pedals and a specific thing. And that you can kind of get away with moving because it doesn't have to necessarily sound like a guitar once it's been shifted, if that makes okay, sense. Okay, so there was some re-recording involved. Yeah, there's a lot of re-recording. I think by the end of it, we had three or four three-inch binders of just... Uh, notes on tones and settings for everything for every song if we need to go back three or four binders per song uh no three or four binders total but like those big three inch binders um which fortunately we finally ended up getting a really good assistant so that that definitely made it easier there were a few points where we would go back to a tone i don't know if anybody heard the last time i was on our assistant was terrible at the time there were a few songs (laughs) we would try to go back and just the the notes weren't there and we'd kind of have to recreate it you mean former assistant? Yes, very former assistant. So did you, did we talk <laughs> about the former assistant on the one-year anniversary or the first time around? Well, he was on his way to being a former assistant at that point. We were talking about how <laughs> he was uh, failing at life and wanted to work at Pizza Shuttle. So Okay, so um, yeah, so it, it, since Joey suggested becoming a genius and listening to all uh, 112 or 15 episodes over the next week, Check out the Josh Newell episodes where we talk about his soon-to-be former and now former assistant as a good example of what not to do. And and I'll I'll recap it real fast in regards to <laughs> I started out as the band's assistant engineer, ended up their Pro Tools editor and engineering for him. We and we've done multiple records. This last record, the the kid we had just never never caught on. They just did did not get better. Um, and we finally got rid of him and we were able to get our assistant from the previous record back. He'd been doing some post work and was going back to college for some computer programming classes and was, was between semesters. So we coerced him to come back. He killed it. We went to a new studio uh, that's open here in LA that was really kind of looking for a new lead assistant. They liked him so much that as soon as Lincoln Park wrapped, they offered him a job there. So he's now their head assistant. He's doing, uh, I actually just saw him the other day. He's doing the new Stone Sphere. Yeah, he's the new like head assistant at Sphere. He skipped everybody that they had had working there for a year, and he's currently like assisting Jay Rustin on the new Stone Sour record. And like they just love him. He's getting great pay. Everybody was super stoked that he came back. So being a good assistant thing, sometimes it's worth it to uh, skip school. Yeah, <laughs> well, he was just back in school because he's like, I don't know what I want to do. So I'm gonna take some computer programming classes. So, so now he's an assistant again. But that dude, that dude will be engineering soon, I'm sure. By the way. How gorgeous is Sphere Studios? Um, it is beautiful. You guys should look it up. I, I um, actually used to work there. It was owned by Linda Perry for a number of years. It was called Kung Fu Garden. And I worked with Linda for a couple months there. And it was still like a crazy nice facility. But she, and this isn't like talking trash on anybody, but she was just like the real creative type. And they didn't really have a tech to maintain things. So you're working on this old Neve board that was actually Motown's board when they moved to LA. So like you'd be banging channels to try to get them to work. And all that stuff. Like it was a really kind of a frustrating room. And now everything works all the time. And it's it's gorgeous. It's really, really nice studio. Um, massive live room, giant Neve board. I remember when John Brown from Monuments took me there um, when we were filming the boot camp. Because I guess he stayed with Francesco at times. They're buddies. Francesco Camelli the, is the owner. And they were almost done building it. And I remember going there and being like, this is like 
one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life, studio-wise. Like, every single detail has been planned out design-wise. Yeah, it was, it was very meticulously put together. And it doesn't... You know how some fancy studios have that Hard Rock Cafe vibe? <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, Hard Rock Cafe vibe. I actually worked at Hard Rock Cafe when I uh, was in college. So, yes, I know exactly Bullshit, what you're talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're like... Planet Hollywood or Hard Rock Cafe, and they have like the the Motley Crue tour jacket or something like framed. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like that at all. It's like a uh, it's like a gorgeous spa or something, kind of. There actually used to be a hot tub in that studio uh, at one oh, point before well, he took over. Go. So yeah. <laughs> so when Lincoln Park was at Sphere, did they take over the whole building? No, we just had the uh, the main A room booked out. Um, the B room, the A room is the tracking room with the Neve. The B room is like a mixed room. And then there's a bunch of little production suites. So there would be, I mean, it was cool. There would be, there would be people through. And I'm sure some of you guys like have heard the new Lincoln song at this point. Um, and it's kind of like a little bit of the direction that the record went. They, uh, they brought in some, some co-writers just to try co-writing with some pop people for the first time. So um, it was interesting because we would run into people the, the writing was kind of more toward the front of the album and then they figured out how they wanted to flush all the songs out. So we would actually run into songwriters at Sphere working on other sessions once we were really kind of working on the songs. But it was it was cool to be making a rock record in one room and then you'd come out and like, oh, CeeLo's here and hanging out. <laughs> so, because um, a lot of those rock studios when you do those rock records, like it's just all dudes that know each other and rock dudes that hang out versus, you know, like the guy from Niles Barkley or whatever. But yeah, we just had the, we just had the main tracking room uh, and but in that regard, you know, we had an edit bay and then we completely changed the lounge into the DJ studio. So there's a bunch of modular synths and turntables and stuff like that. Okay, so that's, I was just curious how you would have gotten the stations done, or how you would have set them up all in one room. Oh, right, right, yeah. Lounge was one, uh, one of the ISO booths was mine, and then main room, obviously. Dude, when you're on a project for that long, do you get cabin fever or anything, or... Like not, I I don't mean to say that it's bad because obviously that's the kind of gig that people work their whole lives to achieve. But like, still, I know that when I'm on a project for a really really long time, there comes a point where you kind of hit a wall or like something. So just something mental happens. Do you do you get that at all? Uh, yeah, and that definitely happened. I mean, the thing that was weird for us is the engineering crew is guys in the band when you're working that long, guys in the band would take vacations, but they're not all taking a vacation at the same time. So you're not really, you're not really getting a break. And we, we got it kind of worked out where, uh, you know, I, I fortunately didn't that far away from the studio. So if I had to, like, if there was something that came up that couldn't get rescheduled, I could pop out and pop back in if it was a slow day. But yeah, there was definitely some cabin fever. I mean, we had, we had a week off each Christmas and then beyond that, the only trip I took out of town was due to a death in the family. So it was I, like I had a week away, but it wasn't like it was a vacation week, you know. Um, That's intense. It, yeah. And the other thing that got weird was one of the guys that there are a couple guys in the band that are usually in the studio more than others. One would come in about 10 and nine or 10 in the morning and he would leave around six or seven. But the other guy that would do a lot of work would usually come in around three in the afternoon and then he would work till maybe 10 or midnight. And then they would have work they wanted done after that, too. So we it everybody kind of understood like how brutal some of the hours were getting and, and things got worked out where, you know, the engineers would start kind of working in shifts. Like I would, or, you know, other guy would come in early and then I would come in later in the day and I would stay later or something like that. I mean, everyone was kind of fortunately very cognizant of it, but yeah, it's, 
even on the best of sessions, like it, it got, <laughs> I actually realized like the first week I had off after the record, it was kind of weird being around my friends and my wife again during the day. And just, <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. Like, not that I didn't see them throughout the, the course of the whole recording thing. And, you know, we fortunately also take weekends off, but it was just, it almost felt like I had to get reacclimated into society <laughs> because I had been talking to the same five or six people every day for a year and a half. <laughs> the, I mean, just the fact that you said we got a week off at each Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> like you're talking about the same record. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. Just think about that for a second. Uh, I did get a four day weekend. when It was my anniversary that I got, that I got set up, but it was, yeah, the other, other breaks were for Christmas. And like I said, one of those Christmases, they decided to kind of update the computer. So yeah, the band wasn't in, but we were still kind of in part time, just making sure all the rigs worked. Man, that's a crazy schedule. I'm just thinking about some of the records I've done and I'm sitting here like I go crazy sometimes after like two or three weeks with a band. I remember one time I had a band in for like, let's just say five or six weeks. And I remember after like three weeks in, I was like, hey guys, you want to just fuck off for the day? And like, you know, we'll, we'll set the assistant in the other room and you know, those guys can go work on guitars, but we'll go down to like the card shop and uh, re regain our 12 year old uh, magic, the gathering skills and uh, become <laughs> nerds for a day or something. We got to do something completely radically different than what the hell we're doing. Cause we're all burning out. And they were like, yes, please. <laughs> so I can only imagine, uh, you know, what month six, or nine or 12 or you know would be like the last the i mean the last full record i did was that intronaut record where we tracked the entire thing in four days and then <laughs> did i think two days of vocal overdubs and reamp some stuff because we had a little too much amp bleed on a couple guitar parts and then that was it so to go now from we're talking like a one week album to a year and a half and usually lincoln and, and that <laughs> album sounds that album sounds killer by the way thank the, you i love the way that intronaut sounds thanks i appreciate that I, I, this is my fourth Lincoln record, I think. And, you know, there was one that we did that took two and a half years, but it took two and a half years across. It took two, it was not a solid two and a half years. I mean, they would go on tour and come back and we'd work for three or four months and come back. But this was a, a nonstop. And I've never done that before. And this is, <laughs> this isn't saying anything bad about the band or anyone I worked with, but I just, I would never want to do it again, I think, because for me, and, and they were self-producing. So in that regard, it was good that I wasn't the one having to keep like the freshest of perspectives at all time. Like I'm not making the command decisions, but I definitely burned out on a lot of songs. And, you know, they would ask for feedback because you're working with them. And there would be days where you would just finally, you know, in and in a, in a being honest with your client type of thing, it's like, I don't know if that's better or if I like that more just because it's new. I mean, that was a problem I was having. So like I said, fortunately, I wasn't in charge of making those final calls, but... Um, I definitely don't suggest you guys make a record that way if you can help it. <laughs> well, and I guess the fact that they took vacations worked against you because they would get refreshed while you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, from a working standpoint, I, yeah, that was definitely advantageous for them. But if, if they hadn't done it, who knows how nutty it would have gotten in there. Like if people yeah. weren't taking breaks and there weren't that many different guys in the band coming in, you know, one guy might like, oh, I can't be in the next three days this week and someone else would work. Um, so I guess for them, it keeps it a little fresher because they're kind of coming and going a little more than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. This makes me think about strategy as a producer. So I'm trying to like empathize here and put myself in your shoes and like, okay, let's just say, I mean, I know the band self-produced, but you know, for everybody listening to this, if you're in a situation like this, how can you avoid that happening? So I'm sitting here like, maybe if I was producing a band 
and it was going to be a scenario where we're going to be in the studio for six months. I, would it make sense to you guys? I mean, for me, it does. But if you guys just sat down and say, okay, hey, we're three months in, we've been working our asses off. Everybody take two weeks off and do not listen to the songs. And we'll come back in two weeks and we'll see how we feel about it and see where we're at. And maybe we'll get some new creative spark and some fresh ambition or some fresh takes. What do you guys think? So that might actually, like I said, at least in my brain, it works. Uh, be a cool way to attack something like that because maybe the if you guys are getting that burned out on the songs, maybe you need to get away from them for a month and then just come back into the studio totally fresh and uh, full of ideas. I don't know. I, I would think that would be my approach. I mean, the record that we spent that two and a half years on, you know, they'd go out on tour for two months and then come back. So then you're coming back with a fresh perspective. And the producer on that yeah, one, definitely. the producer on that one was Rick Rubin, and that whole Rick Rubin thing that you know some people like and some people don't, where Rick kind of comes in one day a week, gives you a general outline of what he thinks your record, then comes back the next week. It started to make sense, like oh, if you're doing a record for six months and you're only having to hear the songs one day a week, and then you can kind of hear what's been done, you get to hear like a grand because uh, you know the way we we were making these records is they they pick a song and kind of work on it, or let's work on this one, or let's figure out with this. So from Rick's perspective, coming in once a week he gets to hear the end product of all that changes and, and, and isn't invested in, you know, if you're the guy that spent all week like working on this one song and it's just changing little by little every day and yeah, maybe it's different after a week, but you're you're going through incremental changes and you're really, really involved with it and really invested, you may not have that perspective, so. Yeah, and emotionally too, that's another thing that happens. Yeah, the whole thing made me understand Rick Rubin's approach a little more. Yeah, people can get emotionally invested in a song too, just because, oh man, I love this part. This is my guitar part. You know, it, it, it can't be taken out. And the producer walks in, you're like, dude, that part's shit. We got to cut it. Try doing this, do it up an octave, but change three notes. And it'd be way better. No, no, I don't want to try it, man. You know what I mean? Like all, all kinds of crazy stuff like that can happen too, where a musician just totally immerses in it or even you know as a, a producer or whatever um if you've had some decent writing on the album you can lose perspective pretty fast i've always thought that the rick rubin method is brilliant like i know some people talk shit about it but it's always made perfect sense to me like he's the boss boss isn't supposed to get involved in the nuts and bolts he's supposed to make the big decisions and well, how it's can just like mixing them yeah. You, you know, you're mixing the song, you're five hours in, you're like, yeah, this sounds really badass. And you put it down and you send it to the band, you come in the next morning, you hit play and you're like, shit, really? Oh man, my bass is way off. My kick sucks. Like, what the <laughs> hell was I thinking when I EQ'd those guitars? Damn it. <laughs> well, we would, on the record this time, we would, we kept a going Dropbox of everything that was getting worked on. So even the people couldn't make it into the studio for a few days, they could always see what was getting done. And as it got farther in, some of the guys like, you know, I used to really like this song and I don't really like it anymore and I'm not sure if I'm burned out or if there's something missing. So they would go back to an older version of the song, listen to that, and then kind of come in and go, you know, uh, because as every every time somebody works on a, a song in a session, you every song starts out like song title 1.0 and then song title 1.1 and then usually the initials of who worked on it. So like if I got handed a song and they're like, oh, can you chop the drums on this? You know, it would come back, song title number 3.7 JN and they could be like all right well Josh cut the like we know who's the last person that worked on it we can ask them what they did so he would go back and one of the guys in the band would go back in the Dropbox like you know version 1.4 really has a thing that we don't have on version 2.4 and I'm not sure what it is let's go open version 1.4 and listen to it and see if it's a part or if we change tempos or did we do a structure change or arrangement change it's killing it so they kind of I, I guess in that regard by being able to jump back to prior versions of the songs, they could kind of pull the Rick Rubin move on themselves where they could 
look at it from a, like a bigger gap of time versus, oh, I worked on this today and yesterday and the day before. They came, oh, what was this like, you know, 10 days ago and what was good about it then that had me so excited that I feel is not there now. But That's a good I, strategy too. Like save everything just in case you want to reference it. Yeah, I think by the end we were, we had full two terabyte drives. Yeah, I was about, I was about to backup. say how big did that Dropbox get? Uh, I think we had a one terabyte Dropbox. I don't yeah. know how much of it got filled. But I know that we there were multiple times throughout the, that was one of the downsides of the session too. Like, all right, we've now filled out the one terabyte drives that we thought would handle this record. We've got to move everything over to two terabytes. And you know, you're running three or four rooms at once and you're having to synchronize all the drives and you have safety backups and offsite backups. Like now we have to move, you know, this set of ten drives all over to two terabyte drives while continuing to work. That all got like there was a lot of note keeping involved, and <laughs> that all got really messy. Jeez, and then technology increased, so four terabyte drives came out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how does the note keeping on that compared to uh, recall sheets in analog world? It depends. A lot of the guys in the band actually like writing stuff down, or you know, there's always the email chain. We set up a couple of Google documents where we could. Uh, you know, or we'd have a spreadsheet of the song and what needed to be done on it and who they were collaborating with on it and who wanted to move this and what the suggestion was. So that kind of helped. Or we would just keep like a going notebook. And we also kept like the dummy going notebook where, and when we started, I was keeping it because I couldn't trust our assistant at the time to, to, to keep notes right. But later our, our good assistant took over. Were you just keeping a going tab of what you did in the room during the day, just for a quick, you know, Tuesday, this day, all right, we worked on this song and we tracked guitars and this song and, and we did vocals. Just for a quick, if somebody came in like, man, what day was it that we tracked guitars on that song? Like you can kind of flip back through it too. So it was a combination of like high-tech Dropbox, you know, Google Drive, all that stuff. Um, and then just super low-tech, like, oh, we have a notebook with notes and some notepads. So um, but that's where it helps to have a good, have a good assistant because the, <laughs> actually the week I was out of town um, because of the, the, the death of my family, I asked, that's when we still had our bad assistant, and I asked him to keep notes while I was gone. Uh, you know, just like, kind of write down the song titles and what they did every day. And I came in and looked at his notes, and it was just all this random stuff scribbled on one piece of paper with no dates. And one of his notes was, Josh tuned vocals on this song. And I was like... Oh, I, no. <laughs> um, I was like two time zones away. Like, how did I tune vocals on that? Oh, I... So, that was one of, you know... <laughs> How long after that did you replace him? I think that was toward the end. That was when it was just like, all right, this guy really is not getting anything right. That How do you get that wrong, though? Like, Josh is not at the studio. How did Josh tune vocals? Like, Very carefully. What? <laughs> I think... God, that's from, the kind of thing that would set me off. <laughs> uh, I, I did snap at him, and that was one of the things that would make me mad about him was I, I would get mad at him, and I don't like getting mad at the people I work with. So I would snap yeah, at him and then I, I would get mad at it's it's like when my dog does or one of my dogs does something <laughs> that they know not to do and I yell at them and then I feel bad because the the face they make that I'm yelling at my dog and then I'm mad at them for not doing <laughs> like I'm now mad at them for making me yell at them to and now I because I now feel bad for having yelled at them. I'm I'm sure I'm sure what happened was someone's like, Oh, these vocals need to get tuned, like tell Josh to tune them and it probably got written down wrong, but yeah, I'm not, I guess I should stop harping on the old assistant. But so to answer your question, <laughs> notebooks and then, uh, you know, actual paper copies, photographs of things, and then Google documents and uh, Dropbox all kind of going at once. That sounds very similar to what we've got going um, at URM. The, uh, we use the hell out of Google Drive, spreadsheets, documents, all that. It's Oh, yeah. 
invaluable. Also, I think we spent a few hundred dollars on marker boards just so that there could be kind of marker boards <laughs> up in the studio where you could kind of keep track of what was going on. Because at one point we literally had 80 songs, not fully flushed out, but 80 songs that had been written and at least written and a vocal and a basic music track done for. So at that point, like it kind of helped to have like a visual representation of all the song titles. Man, I should have bought stock at Dollar Tree. I would have killed it. <laughs> Sounds like just the the act or the discipline of keeping up with the session was a huge part of the effort. Like, forget all the the music. It just sounds like just the uh, the session itself, the maintenance, the upkeep, the all that was an effort unto itself. Well, and I think I touched on this when I was on when you guys had me on. Uh, one of the other times when you, I mean, obviously records like this don't get made very often. Like bands just don't have that kind of budget and don't really have that kind of time. But the other thing with a, uh, like Linkin Park is kind of a, one of the flagship artists for their label. And I'm sure this goes on when Metallica makes records. It definitely happened when Avril Lavigne made a record. Like it's kind of a, it's a big business like, you know, or, or even their touring thing is like a big business. And I think they touch, if you watch that Metallica documentary, the some kind of monster where they talk about disbanding Metallica, they're like, Oh, this is, this isn't uh, a corporation in and of itself that it employs a bunch of people. So you're, you're dealing with that with Lincoln. Like it's not just the engineers. Like it's weird. It's not just making a record. It almost feels like what I would imagine kind of like launching a video game or something like that would be like, because they have their own management team and they have, a very involved street team and they have their own kind of in-house, they do their own in-house management and their own in-house promotion. So you're not, it's not like the onus completely falls on the engineers to keep up with everything. Like there's personal assistance and management that's involved, but it's definitely, it's definitely not like making a standard rock record where they're like, yeah, we wrote these 15 songs and we're going to come in and we're going to cut these 15 songs and we've blocked out this many days and we're going to do guitars and we'll do drums. Like it's a, it's a, it's like a, like a small economy. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's almost like a small, I, I really can't think of another way to do, like, it's gotta be the way they make films or the way they make video games where multiple people are working on multiple things and you keep bringing them back in and piecing them together. Like, all right, well, we haven't done the CGI on this scene yet, but here's like the, the, the placeholder so you can get an idea of what we're doing and we're going to change the scene here. Sounds like running a company. Yeah, which, uh, you know, I went to recording school because I wanted to do music. I actually, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I was like, why would I get a mu music business with our business was one of the optional minors. And I was like, why would I want to get a business thing? Like, I want to make music. So, and now I end up working with a band that's kind of, you know, its own economy and business. <laughs> when I got signed, that's what they called the big bands, like... When I was like, I wanted, uh, when I first got signed, I was like, you think we could tour with Slipknot? And they were, and the answer was, Slipknot's big business. Not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> yeah, those, it was always, that band's big business. You don't have a chance. And uh, I didn't, it took me a while to understand what big business meant in rock and roll terms until I experienced behind the scenes on Nightwish in Europe. And was like, okay. This is what big business means. There's like 50 people at this show working for them whose lives depend on this. And there's like a whole team around the world of like everything you could imagine just working for this band. It's it's so far beyond just the band. It's like basically, it's like basically a company at that point. They're on, so Warner Brothers is their label, which is obviously a big label. And Warner Brothers is... 
actually Warner Brothers and the studio we were in are in the same town. Like they're the, the Warner Brothers head offices are I think less than five miles away from the studio. So you'd have people coming by in that regard, but then like Warner Brothers Europe is coming in because they need to know how the album's going because they have to figure out the marketing plan for Europe. And it's, and man, it's all that stuff's kind of intense. It's weird. You know, K-Rock's in town. Like uh, for those of you that don't know LA radio, which I imagine a lot of you, K-Rock's like the big institutional rock radio station here. Well, K-Rock really helped launch Lincoln Park. So K-Rock wants to come in and hear a song. Like it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like it's a, it's a completely different undertaking than probably a lot of, you know, like doing an intronaut record in four days where the A&R guy doesn't even show up. Cause he's like, yeah, I know what the band sounds like. It's fine. You know, like, <laughs> which one do you prefer? If I had my druthers, I would, you know, I musically, I, I, I would say I, and the guys know this, like I'm not exactly a Lincoln park fan. I wouldn't change the channel if Lincoln park came on. So, but, but the guys in the band know, like we've, we've discussed this, like the guys in the band know they're, they're not my taste, uh, as far as like from, from a purely musical standpoint. Um, but there's something fun about doing a low budget, faster album where you kind of have to make a decision and move on. Like, but I don't know. There's there's the pros and cons to both. Like the the pros of being able to like not money being no object, but like you're getting to use the nicest gear and you're getting to really like spend all this time. Like we track drums. You know what? I don't like the drum tones. Let's well we can re-record drums and we'll have the drum tech come in and he'll bring another six kits. Like that, that's, that's fun. <laughs> and it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like that's, that's fun in its own regard. Just because like, who gets to do that? Or who gets like, you know, maybe, maybe a diesel is what we want. Like, all right, you guys get us a diesel and like, we'll hook that up and just, you know, anything that you want to try to make it sound like that's there, there are parts of that that are just fantastic. But then there's parts where like, you know, trying to make a record for a year and a half is, would not be my, my first call on wanting to do something. I mean, I, I was in bands and it, it hit a point. Um, do you guys know that band in this moment? The, like the girl fronted yeah, yeah. metal band. Yeah. I was there. I was, so I was the original bass player. Like I was in that band when they oh, first wow. started out and like first started playing shows and it hit a point where they're like, all right, we're going to start touring now. There's some label interest. And I kind of went, you know what? I'm going to stick at NRG. Like I really like recording. And part of my decision on that was I liked the idea of, Oh, if I record records, I can make, six to eight different records in a year and like not get burned out on a project. Whereas if you're in a band, you make the record and then you tour it for two years. Like, Hey, all you, you probably are the better person to like speak to this. So it was more appealing to me to like do, uh, more, more different projects than to stay Absolutely. like kind of with one. So in that regard, like Lincoln's a lot of fun because you get to, to do all that stuff on the other side. Like it's, I prefer getting to work on multiple things at once. So I guess, like, I don't know, I think maybe I would like the shorter, smaller budget one, but at the same time, it's really nice to have like a full year of a nice big full budget record and to be able to, to get to play with every toy. Like, oh, let's use two fifty ones as our overheads. And we have two $30,000 microphones for our overheads for six months because they had that at the studio and you're a paying client versus calling everyone I know to borrow microphones because you only have this much money for a studio and you're having to like, you know, plug holes in their, their, uh, equipment deficiencies. So I don't know that I have a preference. <laughs> I'm glad that I get to do both. Basically. Like, I'm glad I get to do a big long record like that. And then that leaves me the option of kind of being able to do some stuff where like, Oh, maybe there's not as much money in this, but it's fun. And I know that like, I can still put food on the table and, you know, feed the dogs and the kid and all that stuff. So when you did like Avril and stuff, was it a similar sort of thing? Like you need something, boom, you got it. Yeah. I mean, I actually, um, I worked with Puff Daddy very briefly, uh, right before this Lincoln Park, uh, album started. 
And it was kind of a cool thing because he brought back all the guys that did the Notorious B.I.G. records. But that was a weird session in the regards. They they were really willing to throw money at anything. And they brought in a guy and he was like, you know, I I have kind of an idea for this song. And the studio we were in had a bunch of production rooms. And like, all right, well, cool. Go down and we'll tell the studio manager that you want another room and just tell us what you want. And the guy's like, all right, well, let's rent congas. Let's rent a tambourine. Um, I'm going to need a bass, like three guitars, because this guy played a bunch of instruments. And they just sent out for all this and booked the other room down the hall. And we're like, all right, now let's do that. On Like, this guy has an idea. Like, let's drop thousands of dollars into pursuing that idea to see what he comes up with, because it might be might be amazing. So... Obviously, Puff Daddy records don't get made every day either. But so it's crazy that it's cool for someone to go like, I have an idea and I want to see it through and I need to get all this stuff and it's expensive. And for someone to go like, yeah, go ahead and go for it and let's see if it works. But it is weird because just most records aren't like that. But at the same time on that session, they're like, oh, engineers have to buy their own lunch because we kind of need to keep the budget in line. It's like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I I guess I'm used to... um fighting about the number of drum heads that are going to be purchased for the for the session like yeah. uh yeah i want to change once every two songs and they're like no can we do it every three or four those are the fights not uh can we rent this many instruments for your idea yeah the real question is did you win that fight the which what fight? was the fight oh the drum head the, fight the, the two to three versus uh oh. or three to four versus two <laughs> I typically would win the fight because I would end up just paying for some drum heads out of my own pocket if I needed. I was hoping for a good story, but yeah, no, there's no no. good story. (laughs) The the story is I wanted the drums to sound good. And if the band wouldn't do it, I would do it. I could feel the animosity in your voice. And I was just like, this is going to be good. And it wasn't. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I felt, I felt bad because some of the dudes in these bands really wanted to, but they were just flat broke. It's not the and the label was not sending them their even their food money, so like they're flat broke. They don't even if they wanted to spend their food money on the drum heads, they don't have their food money, and I just felt really really bad. And I mean I I know that I was making like way more than they would ever see from that album in royalties, and not that I felt like I should get. get paid less or anything but i just felt bad and i wanted the drums to sound good so i paid for the rest of the heads out of my own pocket several times i can sell you some drum samples that sound pretty good if you want to uh, fix that problem next time <laughs> thank you thank you thank you just I here for that. you anytime buddy <laughs> thanks but so you guys have never paid for stuff out of your own pocket for yeah, projects occasionally i mean i'm a big stickler for guitar strings i get really pissed after and some guys go by the song but for me it's always like at least the brand that i buy which are like the ernie ball uh super slinkies those are the ones that i like i i think about in an hour and a half they kind of le- lose that spank there's yep. just like this certain thing somewhere around an hour and a half hour 20 hour 40 somewhere in that 20 minute window it's time to restring and uh you know um when you're recording real bands they can afford it most of the time when you're recording bands that suck and you're like uh i mean suck financially they don't have any money <laughs> i shouldn't say they <laughs> suck there's some really really good vocal bands but um you know we'll call them starter bands you know baby bands you know they come in they're like you're like oh shit you didn't set up your guitar oh man you've got a strat and you want to get brutal ass metal tone and with stock pickups fuck okay um here use my guitar i'll restring it for you it's okay you know i'll eat the five bucks you know what i mean like 
it, it matters. It, it depends. If, if, you, if the band's got some good songs and some potential and you want to impress the client, you know, sometimes you do need to invest a little bit of money because it shows that you care. And I feel like that's a good uh, long-term residual client builder. What about you? I've paid for a ton of stuff. <laughs> um, I have my own bass rig that I basically bring for every recording session uh, just because I, I hate I, I'm a ba- I hate dealing with bass players that are just like, oh, I have this Ibanez that sounds pretty good. And I'm like, it doesn't. I, I, <laughs> I, and if you guys use Ibanez, it's like, cool. And I'll use them. But I'm like, all right, if we're going to use your Ibanez, like we're going to use my, I have a couple like nice Ampegs. I have like a nice DI. I've got, you know, some dark glass pedals. Like, all right, we're going to legitimately Ooh, do nice. this. And I, but I've also worked out, I, I fortunately, my, one of my best friends, uh, a friend of mine from college who moved out here is a professional guitar tech now. So I can barter with him when I'm working with a band and he's, he's cool. Like if he's got time to work on something and it's a band I'm doing, he'll set up a guitar cheap uh, because normally it's not like that much of a hassle for him. Which is which is great for me, and then I got him the gig guitar checking for Lincoln Park. I kind of introduced him to those guys, so in that regard, like I can every once in a while if I have to lean on him, like hey, remember that time I got you that really high profile client gig? <laughs> um, <laughs> like fix this guy's guitar for me, okay? Uh, and I've got a buddy, like I've got a couple buddies in town that are drum techs that you know they also kind of have like their small production studios where they're recording drums for people and. You know, I'll get that phone call like, well, Pro Tools is doing this thing and I can't figure it out. Or can you come help me move some mics? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then I get to lean back on them later when, you know, some drummer shows up with a bunch of, uh, you know, those B8 symbols or something like that. Or it has a terrible oh, snare B8. drum. Or, oh, man. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I've kind of worked out. Fortunately, I've worked out a barter system or I'll make my friends pay for, uh, for guys that, you know. All right, look, you're going to have to pay to get your guitar set up, but you can go to my friend and he'll charge you 30 bucks for a setup instead of paying 60 for your setup or something like that. Two things on that. First off, Josh, you've tainted the whole podcast by saying the word that we don't say, which is B8. <laughs> now, now it's ruined. We, have, we haven't done B8s on the podcast in at least a year. Oh, man. Second off, I just want to hammer on how important I think it is for anybody producing records to acquire those skills, especially if you're dealing with like a lot of local bands and things like that where they don't have a budget for a really awesome drum tech. It's extremely important to know how to set up a guitar, for example, because if a band walks in the studio, and even if you don't have a bunch of good guitars in your studio and you just have a really small, basic setup, they walk in with their guitar, you got to get the best tone you can out of their instrument, right? Well, most people don't know how to set up a guitar. It doesn't take that long to learn how to do, but if you can do it, you can be like, hey guys, well, you can go pay the guitar tech 75 bucks, or I can do it in 30 minutes. You can pay me to do it uh, just in terms of time. So I always use those skills and things like that as a way to get a better product for the band because they walk in with some piece of shit beat up like $200 Ibanez or Schecter and you're like, give me that thing, you know, and in in two minutes you've got it playing better than they ever have because you're the first time they've ever set up the action on the guitar correctly and the guitarist's like, oh man, wow, this is crazy. I can actually like do all these things and, you know, and then next you get the guitar set up correctly and the truss in the correct direction and all that stuff and you know so the guitar is intonated and you know it sounds good and you can actually record with it you know you don't go to the eighth fret now it's a quarter step flat (laughs) so it's good to have those skills same thing with with tuning drums and things like that like understanding how a drum works and how to tune it um you know you can really save your ass on a lot of lower budget sessions or even good sessions but sessions without uh you know, like it, the band, I don't know, just if you don't want to hire a tech and you want to be cheap. In the upcoming drum course, the URM one, Joel, you weren't there. So uh, I'm going to tell you guys about something we filmed. We're uh, working on a drum course right now with Matt Brown, the drum tech that uh, 
that I used. Yeah, he's amazing. We hired him for Drum Forge. He's one of the best in the world. And with uh, Luke Holland playing drums, and uh, we decided that we wanted to keep it very real. So we have a couple sections that deal with how to make the most out of a shitty drum kit, for instance. And we walked through it. We got, we rented a shitty drum kit, and then we also got another one from one of his like students or something. And uh, we went through the process of taking this bad situation with the drum kit and tweaking everything possible about it. And we got it sounding pretty damn good. Like you can, you can make a lot out of a little, if you know what you're doing. Just want to know how that rental phone call went. Like, do you guys have any really shitty drum kits we can rent? The guy was like, "Eh." I mean, everything we, we rent here is professional quality. Okay. I need the one that would be like, you know, that you would consider professional quality. I'll take that one. (laughs) I, I guess I also get to live in a fortunate situation where Los Angeles being such a music town, like it's really not that hard to find somebody. I can I can intonate a guitar and a bass. Like I, I bass being my primary instrument, like that I can do faster. I can get your drum sounding pretty good, but like for, for me at least it's worth, especially if it's friends that are willing to help out and kind of know the situation. Like it works for me to be able to like kind of throw them a little business, but I'm also dealing in a situation where like I can easily find those people if need be. Um, but yeah, the B8 thing, which I'm sorry to bring it up again on your podcast. Um, <laughs> well, two negatives just, equal a positive. Just, your so your, your shitty drum kit thing reminded me, I, I helped a, a, a friend. Uh, it was kind of a local band thing. And I got him an NRG really cheap. Like NRG was having a, a lot of downtime. And I was still uh, on staff there at the time, I think. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, my drummer, like he's pretty good. He's got a DW kit. He's got some Sabian cymbals. I was like, all right. I was like, cool. And <laughs> uh, he's like, they sound pretty good. I'm like, all right. Well, and, and said friends, been in bands for a while. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting him on this and got it. He's like, yeah, I think we can get 12 songs in a day. I was like, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. Like, you guys need the <laughs> Red book. Flag. Like if you want to do this quick, like I'll, I'll give it to you for, for like, we can do two days, maybe three. And then, you know, we'll talk about editing. So his drummer shows up and like, oh no, it's a PDP kit, which is, technically made by dw or whatever their base model is you know like all right that's t-. and then it was ended up being b8 so i fortunately was working as a producer <laughs> i fortunately was working, and nrg has a house kit but it was being used by somebody else like and a house kit with symbols and like that was all gone so i call up my one friend that has this really nice black beauty clone and i at least get that in and then i hit up another friend who's like okay you can use my symbols if you break any you have to replace it which we did we broke one but then the kit like i just <laughs> i could not find i could not find anybody with a backup kit so one of my old roommates uh at the time and he, he i think he still is but he was he, he was blink 182's engineer for a long time specifically travis so he's like oh i can't bring you one of travis's kits but his tech is here today his tech's a friend of mine he's like and he said he'd come by and help out if you guys buy him lunch i was like okay great so his like his tech uh daniel uh runs that company orange county percussion like that's his company he texts for travis he texts for no doubt so he came in and like works his magic on this pdp kit and he comes in like man it's sounding really great and he's like yeah, but I don't know what to tell you. He's like, that kit is so poorly made. Like by the time he finishes two songs, it's going to be completely out. And like, I just can't be here all day. So uh, even like getting somebody that can work magic on a rough kit, uh, it's still like, just find somebody that has a nice drum kit, guys. Like it's it's really worth. Uh, but Oh, I agree. To that drummer's credit too, the next time I worked with him, 
I, like he really like tried hard and at the end of the day he was like how was it and i was like man your kit's bad your symbols are really bad like i'm about to edit this a lot then i worked with him again two years later and the dude who went and bought like a nice kit and he went and bought nice symbols and he took drum lessons and he still wasn't amazing but he at least put the time in on it. Well, I just thought of a great idea. So every month we have the Nail the Mix competition, right? So we sit down, you know, all these subscribers, they mix. The winner gets uh, gets some pretty awesome prizes. We've given away some pretty expensive stuff. And some of the companies that we've partnered up with have really delivered the goods. It's It's been pretty cool. But man, we should give away a pair of B8s, I feel. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> That'll be like the April, the April. It's like uh, a challenge. Like, here's your present. <laughs> now figure out how to make these sound good. <laughs> <laughs> or wh- whoever like loses or gets like last place, we'll send them the full f- set of B eights. <laughs> send them B eights, and the grand prize is like a crank head or something. <laughs> there was there was one song in that that tracking where he cracked one of the nice symbols, and we had like I forget what it was. We just didn't have an option. We had to put up one of the B eights while one of the other guys like. It was the last song of the day because uh, the drummer was like, all right, we'll go in the morning and I'll buy a replacement cymbal. And like, he didn't even use it that much through the song, but, and I, I didn't end up mixing it. Uh, Brian Virtue did, but like I can listen to the final mixes and I know which song it is because you just hear him playing around the kit and just every once in a while, there's just one cymbal that you're just like, like, fuck, that is the worst sounding thing I've ever heard. And there was just no work around <laughs> at the time. It's just suddenly it sounds like one of those, uh, you know, those kits that they have at like Best Buy or like Walmart. Yeah, our, our, my, I mean, my thought with B8s is they sound like that when uh, you watch those Captain America movies and he hits something with a shield. Like, that's, <laughs> it's got to be some Foley guy, like, waving a B8 around or something. Oh, my God. Josh, if you ever want to do Drum Forge, Josh Newell, with a, just record only B8s, we'll put it out. <laughs> <laughs> just a cymbal pack, no fucking shells, no bullshit, no multi-samples, just one clean shot of There's a B8 literally- <laughs> done on, like, $32,000 worth of overhead microphones. Yeah, I'll call it Sphere and we'll go over there and like B8 it out. Like, it's the, the only best fucking B8 you've ever heard. <laughs> you can't, yeah, you can't EQ out the, uh, there's nothing you can do to make this sample pack make it sound good. <laughs> we'll come up with some algorithm that if you EQ it, it'll automatically cancel it. So it will intelligently detect. <laughs> Our programmer's really fucking good. He'll make an algorithm that intelligently detects whatever EQ you move you do and will immediately do the opposite. So you get, you just get that beautiful. B8 tone. The, the the sample packs all B8s, and then it's the uh, the snare drum from the first Corn record. Um, <laughs> like it's that snare. It's the Saint Anger snare. The kick is the kick from the new Metallica Wait, now, singles. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna fight you on this. I actually like. I, I'm being serious about this. No one thinks I'm serious, but I actually like the Saint Anger snare. I may be the only person in the world. I can no, see it as a, a, I can see it as a blended a sample, others. but not a standalone. I look at it like this. Okay. We've had a few guests like it. Okay. It sounds like shit, but it sounds like really <laughs> well recorded shit. I can't explain it. Like like they tried really hard to make it sound like crap and it's a really annoying sound, but it's it sounds really good. I can't explain it. Like when I listen to it, I'm like, man, that's a pretty good raw recording, even though it's like a final product. I'm just like it's just mic'd up night. I don't know. I I just like how it sounds. I think it sounds good. Um there, there's also a certain kind of like fuck you that it has to it i can't explain it like it maybe it's an oppositional defiance thing with me i'm one of those people where i think that's what it is because it's a horrible sounding snare (laughs) i just like it i i wouldn't use it on any other record but there's something about it that's very pissed off i can't explain it no that 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 makes sense yeah i was gonna say like i think uh a lot of records are meant to be like like i don't know stand the test of time and be played over and over again or something like that but 
if you kind of just run that record through once, it it does have this vibe where it was just like they set up and they played and then they were done and you just like listen to it once through. Kind of has like that pissed off like yeah, here's all our songs and we're really mad and that's it and we're done and. I wouldn't jam it over and over again, but it's like kind of cool. It's like a one-time listen. I, I guess yeah, I like, gave it. I gave it that one listen in two thousand five. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna Never listen again. to it after this podcast. <laughs> it's like, hey, I, I'm too lazy to even put my fucking snare wires on, so fuck you. I'm just gonna hit this piece of shit because I'm Lars Ulrich and I can. I do, I do kind of like, and, and this is actually something I wanted to bring up because I'd seen it like. Uh, because I'd seen it come up on the the threads uh, every once in a while on on Facebook, I tend to lurk the pages more than I, I comment. But every once in a while, like a, a, a production will come out, and people will really be commenting on on like, "Oh, do you like this song?" Like I remember when the new Baroness came out, and people were kind of like, "Oh, I don't know about this." And for me, it was like, "Oh, it's well, it's a Dave Fridman, and that's kind of his thing." Like he makes those weird sounding records, or even the new Suicide Silence stuff with like Ross Robinson. Like I really love Ross Robinson as a producer. He makes some of my favorite records with bands that I don't even normally like. Like I don't like at the drive-in per se, but relationship of command is amazing. And like, you know, the corn records he did and the slipknot records he did. Um, he did the best two slipknot records. Like I, I, I don't think there's any contest on that whatsoever. And that first one sounds terrible. It really does. Like the first corn record, that snare drum sounds like, like crap, but like I, I kind of got nostalgic for it the other day and listened to it. I was like, man, that snare is awful. But yeah, his, I mean, but it's so he, good. Yeah, like, but it's it works. Like that first corn record, and and this is kind of what I like in productions. Um, and it's it's kind of those things like I I really like when a production's done to the taste uh, of an album. Like you can tell someone's really kind of going for it. So that first corn record sounds like a like. I don't know if you guys have been to Bakersfield, but it sounds like a band from Bakersfield. Oh, yes, like, it does. It totally does. It captures the the desolate, the desolate just life destruction that is, <laughs> yeah, that is I'm, Bakersfield. I'm from a tiny town in Tennessee. And then when we, you know, we were doing the band thing, you play Bakersfield because it's like 100 miles away from L.A. And people are like, oh, man, Bakersfield's pretty redneck and it's a little desolate. And I was like... <laughs> I'm from like the KKK started where I went to high school. Like I, I've been in some, like some redneck places, and I got up there and I was like, "Wow, this is completely different." And I completely get corn now. <laughs> so even like even like that that Ross Suicide Silence record, the new one, like they're obviously like one. It sounds like a Ross record, but like they're really going for a vibe on it. That's I mean, it, would I ever put that record up and be like, "These are the you know," or that corn record or the, some of that other stuff? Like, I would never put that record on and be like, "This is the tone I want." But like, they did a really great job of capturing the anger in that, and that's why I think records. I think that's why people still like discover. I, I didn't discover Minor Threat until my late twenties, and I was already making records. And like Minor Threat's first demo tape is just a bunch of nineteen-year-old kids in some room, and it sounds like it's about to go off the rails, and the tones suck. But like, they captured that vibe. Well, here's what's gonna happen. All right, I'm going to call this, and it may come true and it may not, but many years ago, I guess it's two now, when we started this podcast, we said it was cool to listen to Nickelback, and we, it was okay for Metal Kids, and it took a while for it to settle in, and um, then Nickelback came out with that new single recently, and it was pretty heavy, and everybody was like, oh yeah, all the Metal Kids are like, yeah, this new Nickelback is really sweet, like there was this random like Metalhead acceptance of uh, Nickelback, and I was just like, all right, I'm going to give us a soft pat on the back, no, I'm just kidding, but it was, I, I said that more for you. Yeah, humor. dude, it's all, it's all you. <laughs> I said us, not me. I said us. It was a team effort. <laughs> no, I remember this early on uh, having some group Nickelback discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we've said it many times that like Nickelback is fucking sick. <laughs> we all like it on the podcast, but everybody's like, no, I'm a little no, pissed no, no, about no. the new mix, but 
Yeah, whatever. Maybe they'll recover on the album. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Nickelback is still awesome. So we said it was cool. So now what's going to happen is people are going to start coming back. Like, you know, man, I was listening to Saint Anger. That snare's pretty fucking good. <laughs> you know what? We have had a couple other dudes on the podcast who have defended the Saint Anger snare. All right. It's a trend. So when you guys hear this, just go immediately hit social media and be like, you know what? That Saint Anger snare is pretty cool. And just, just like tag us. Well, and uh, we'll, we'll make it a thing. And I think other people <laughs> have made this argument. There's that uh, Doc Coyle wrote an article about Pantera ruining metal recording. And his argument was like, on paper, or not even on paper, like Dimebag Daryl's guitar tone was like those awful boss pedals to like a solid state. And like, it kind of sucked. But Pantera was so awesome and it worked for their sound that like, and you kind of listen to it again, like, you know, the, maybe the Pantera guitar tone isn't the greatest thing and the kick drum sound is maybe a little weird but like it, it kind of worked for that band like I don't know like there's I kind of after coming off the, the 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 Lincoln record and I started like just trying to listen to music that inspired me when I first got into to, to doing production again and like or what inspired me when I got first got into music in high school um you know at that age where we were discussing earlier before we were recording like you know 13 and you someone introduces you to Metallica or something kind of going back and listening to those records and trying to recapture the vibe like what 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 about it made me like those and that's when you know the corn and all that stuff came up and like i don't know there's just an energy on that and somehow like kind of the the production not being perfect really works in favor of a lot of those records and i was never one of those punk rock kids that was like you know black flag forever like i didn't really get into like bad brains and minor threat until way after but I mean, if you put on the first Bad Range record, it is so heavy and it doesn't sound good, but it's so, it, it, or, you know, if you're younger, like it's like that first Slipknot record, that first Slipknot record is so good. But if you really sit down and analyze the tones, like it doesn't sound good, but like they captured the vibe on that. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best shitty sounding record. Maybe it's the best shitty sounding record. Isn't that amazing how that's actually a it's thing? It's the best, the best worst sounding record. Yeah, like... That's what I like about Saint Anger. It sounds like shit, but I, I love how it sounds like shit. It does it so well. <laughs> this is this is shitty, but it's good shitty. Um, yeah, it, it fucking sucks, but it, it sucks in like the best possible way. It, it's really elegantly put together. <laughs> Supposedly, that first Slipknot record is actually just the uh, end of tracking rough mixes. Because when I started NRG like a billion years ago, and we were trying to get this isn't a problem you have very often to get like old reels of two inch out of the vaults, like to get labels to take them. We had uh, dats of Slipknot mixes. Um, and I kind of asked about it. And I guess at one point they were talking about having Jay Baumgartner who owns the place who did like you know, Papa Roach, Alien Ant Farm, a lot of that stuff, Evanescence, having him mix it. And this, this is, I never asked Jay about this. This was just what I was told by other employees, but supposedly Ross found out and like came to the studio and took the tape so that Jay couldn't mix them because he's like, no, 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 you have to put out the rough mixes. Like this is the vibe. And I mean, the dude was right. That was, that record went platinum at a time that no band like that was going to go platinum. You know, the, uh, I remember touring with the band that, uh, played after Slipknot on that first Ozfest where they exploded. Mm -hmm. Um, they were called Puya. Oh yeah, yeah. They. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't. We didn't tour with Puya. We toured with the band that they became, but uh, because they changed their name basically, and got rid of the horn section. But they had to play after Slipknot every single day on that one Ozfest where they they said they said that it broke up their band. That it was the mo they would be moving like two thousand units a week, and then Slipknot would be moving like. 
10 to 15,000 units a week and they were just crushing everybody everything they were like so the crowd would be insane for Slipknot and then Puya would come on and it would be like crickets and basically <laughs> it trauma it traumatized them it, it traumatized them and like ruined their band hey either a band reacts or they don't I mean that's a really important thing with bands if it comes out and it just doesn't react then you know you can't force well, it well they were doing well they were growing slowly growing but I can concur or I can uh, empathize that if you go on stage after a band that just savages the crowd and you're not quite on that level it's it's demoralizing I think we had to play after Behemoth once. Oh, man. On OzFest. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know how... It worked out weird. Like, they weren't a revolving band. They weren't. They had, like, a set time slot, and my band was revolving. But, however, due to something that happened one day, somehow we played after Behemoth. I don't know if it was because they had to duck out early to go do something, or who knows. But man, that that like that was traumatizing. It was, Do you want me to wipe the tears <laughs> off your shirt? <laughs> I, I I didn't enjoy it. So I can imagine playing after Slipknot back then. Ouch. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Life ruiner. We're all kind of speechless after that conversation. Well, think about it. Yeah. Now now that you've thought about it, what's it like being a dad, Josh? Um, <laughs> so far so good. I, uh, I just finished up, he, uh, I, it all timed out, ended up timing out really well with me having some time off of work, but, uh, I took on this mix project, my, uh, like right after Lincoln ended, I took on a mix project that Jay Rustin passed me, this uh, band called Night Demon for, uh, Century Media, which was a really cool thing to do because they kind of have this, uh, Judas Priest, uh, Iron Maiden vibe, like it's kind of an 80s throwback not a, a glammy thing. So it's like, cool, I'm mixing that and the whole nine yards. Like, all right, I'm going to get this done before I have the kid. And then my kid ended up showing up a week early, which was fine. Uh, and uh, due to like some medical issues, he had to be a cesarean. So when they do, they do that, you're in the hospital. So like, you know, you're getting all these congratulatory messages. So the guys in Night Demon hit me up like, hey, man, congratulations. And I kind of let them know like, hey, I have, I have a kid coming. Like, I don't think it's going to mess things up, but just as a heads up. So I kind of let them know like, hey, the kid just had the kid. It's going to be a few days. I know we have like three songs to finish. And I got this message back like, yeah, congratulations. Um, and this was saying like a Tuesday. You turned the bass up. <laughs> yeah. So this is on a Tuesday. I'll kill them for um, you. <laughs> uh, it's on a Tuesday. Like, oh yeah, we didn't tell you. By the way, the record's actually due on Monday. So no, you just had a kid, but like we really need to have it turned in by Monday for mastering. Um, so my first three nights at home with a, uh, like with a kid were spent like with a sleeping baby on my lap, like trying to mix this metal record and headphones, which fortunately at that point, you know, were the last three songs I kind of had a template down for my mixes, but dude, how are you still married after that? My, uh, well, I mean the fact that I got to do that. Well, one, my sister-in-law came in to help. So that was good. Uh, but I, I got a hand, like my wife's just a, a trooper. I mean, she put up with me being on that Lincoln record for a year and a half. Like it was, you know, a year and a half of barely seeing each other. Uh, cause she has a day job. So 
I mean, I guess I'm still married. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, damn. I, I'm, I'm thinking like I would be fucking dead. I mean, when that, I guess that, this happened three times. But when that kid comes, mine was like, yo, you take a week off. I don't care what day it comes. You're off from that week and I need your help. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Which I wasn't given a, <laughs> I, I, well, I told her, I'm like, when this kid comes, like, I'm putting the hammer down on myself. Like, this is stopping. And I was helping another band with some mixes that were trickling in. I was like, all right, this has to cut off. But that one happened. And, like, you know, it was already kind of be set. It was already set up to be paid. I was a referral. Like, it was a thing for Century Media. And it was also like, I just, with Awesome as it is doing a Lincoln record for a year and a half, that means for a year and a half, I really only have one project with my name coming out on it. So part of why I took yeah. this other project was like, all right, I can mix that quickly. Because it was a really basic recording. It's a three-piece band. It's literally just two guitar tracks. I mean, there weren't even rhythm tracks under the solos. Like, they wanted it to sound like they were just a band cutting it. So it was getting done fast. But th- I think <laughs> I think the reason I got away with it was, was due to the fact that those three songs were already kind of set up. There was a template in. So I was just... It sucked. That, that was those first three days of, like, get up at whatever time in the morning spend all day and then like, all right, everyone's going to bed at 11. I'm going to start mixing now in headphones. I'm going to mix till four in the morning and I'm going to sleep four hours and I'll get up and do like the baby thing all day, which only works because it's like, right, I have three songs to get through. That's only going to take me like three days. Dude, you, you're a, you're a maniac. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, there wasn't really another option on that one. So, and in, and knowing that there was an end point in mind made it easier, but I should add the, the footnote on Saturday, I think it was Saturday night or Sunday morning, the singer emailed me because I had sent everything and everything had been approved. I'm like, great. So we're all set. Like got it done in time. Like going to be free on Monday. And I guess part of why I got away with it too, was the kid did show up early. Like it was kind of known that like, all right, I'm going to be wrapping this up just in time. But I think it was Saturday night. The singer was like, Hey, what about this song? I was like, well, what, what song is that? I don't know what you're talking about. And it ended up, they completely forgot to send me a song for an album that had to get mastered on Monday. So I, I pulled one night where... Oops. I think I did like a solid eight hours, like did all my samples, mix prepped it, mixed it, sent it out. And fortunately that one came back with, this sounds great. We're not going to do anything to it. So, But can you turn up the bass 3DB in the snare? I don't like it. Can you try a different sound? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just makes me think of like uh, when I got hospitalized once with swine flu and and I went on Facebook to try to find like my manager because I was on tour at the time. And uh, some like people were start like started blowing up my Facebook and I don't know why I answered, but I did. And they're like, when are you going to play this town? And I was like, Hey, I'm in the hospital. I'll answer you later. And they're like, okay, cool. But, uh, so on this song, when you did blah, 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 it's like, <laughs> I just said, I'm in the fucking hospital. <laughs> fuck you. I'm about to die. But if you really must know, fuck you. <laughs> there were a few of those. I ended up blocking them cause I got so mad. <laughs> like, you can unblock like, them now. <laughs> yeah. I'll unblock them now. But Josh, Thank you for coming on. Yeah, my, it's been awesome my having pleasure. you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you're always welcome. And uh, we should, um, well, this will be released in March, so people already know what's going on. You should come hang out. We're going to actually be doing the Meshuggah Mix at NRG for uh, Nail the Mix. Uh, Tui Madsen, we're flying him over from Denmark, and uh, so you should come hang out. Oh, I'm, I'm going to awesome. be there. I have a yeah. I have concert it, tickets for that night, but like I, I everything else that I had planned for the day, I've already canceled all my friends. <laughs> well, it's going to be at like at 10 a.m. or something. Oh, perfect. Can I just say we, how sick it is that we have Mushuga and Nail the Mix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm that pretty was, excited about it. 
I mean, when, when AOL kind of messaged like, hey, do you, can you put us, uh, introduce us to some, some studio owners in LA that we might be able to do this and it's Meshuggah, but you can't tell them it's Meshuggah yet. I was like, ah, like that's, <laughs> like I, and I think even Joel, I think I remember seeing you post like, oh, we have something coming up, it's going to blow people's minds and AOL told me it was Meshuggah. Like I, I'm, yep. I'm really excited on this one. I mean, I played in like a weird time signature metal band back in college and we were all about Meshuggah, so. We had a lot of fun doing the commercial for that. Um, I don't, well, this will be out by the time, so I guess I can say it and not yeah. get in trouble. But uh, we were trying to get the damn... I have this thing in there where I, I dropped the mic, and um, <laughs> I couldn't get it right. And then I finally, in the last... I don't know, I just dropped it and it like smashed the fucking stand with the camera. And um, <laughs> I, my assistant is sitting there, he's shaking his head, he's like, nah, nah, nah. I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, dude, we nailed it. We got to keep it. That was perfect. So um, Yeah, because the, the mic actually shook the camera. Yeah, yeah like it looks I, perfect. You I didn't have it on to my create any floor. effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. It was like, I'm like, I want it to drop and then like shake the camera. Or, you know, it'll be really cool. And I dropped the mic on the fucking camera, like on the hardwood floor. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it was well, narrow, it. narrowly missed uh, breaking a camera. Oh, over. and I hit his foot too. Yeah, part of the good. mic well, hit that, his foot. That's the good part. <laughs> <laughs> so he was really pissed. He was like, oh no, you got to do that again. I'm like, ah. Hold on a second. That one felt good. <laughs> no, if it caused what, yeah, what, do you need to drop the mic on your foot harder? Because I could do that. <laughs> yeah, let me go add a forty-pound weight to this fifty-eight. And <laughs> I, uh, I, I know we're wrapping. That, that reminds me. I once, uh, when I was assistant at NRG, uh, obviously you guys know what Yamaha sub kicks are, but for some reason the Yamaha sub kicks were kept on top of the mic locker. So we'd finish the session for the evening. I closed the mic locker door, and someone had put I don't know it was too close to the edge to so the sub kick toppled over like when the cabinet door shut it vibrated the foot you know the, the tripod lost balance so the thing fell over from like this eight foot shelf and just nailed my ankle um, so it's like oh i think this is broken <laughs> it's like one of the runners gets a herman miller and like roll me out and i go to the emergency room and you know got x-rays unfortunately it wasn't it wasn't broken or anything it was just bruised and i had to have like a one of those walking boots on it but trying to explain to um the company's like workers comp insurance that I <laughs> like trying to explain to the like, all right, so what happens? So a piece of musical equipment and you have to explain what it is. I'm like, well, it's a drum, but there's a speaker in it, but it works as a microphone. <laughs> and I just, just like, Google sub kick. I spent like 45 minutes on the phone with this person and I, they couldn't Google it for some reason. I spent like 45 minutes on the, on the phone with this person, like trying to explain my way through what a Yamaha sub kick was, why it fell on me. And then of course their next question is, well, how many hours do you usually work in a week? Which when you're, you know, working sessions them. at a studio. Yeah. But I'd completely forgotten about that. Like, yeah, I had a sub kick fell on me and then I had to explain to workers comp how you can injure yourself having a microphone fall on you. <laughs> <laughs> Battle stories. <laughs> Did they end up understanding what the sub kick was? Uh, somewhat. I, I basically like, they kind of came to the resolution. I was like, eh, basically it's a speaker. And they're like, all right, well that, that made more sense to them. I was like, just imagine your subwoofer from your, your home stereo system falling on you off a shelf. Oh, decapitate your phone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it. Well, thanks dude. It's been awesome having you on. Uh, we'll see you in a month. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.